one paradox of spiritual practice which we all discover real quick is that we come on a retreat like this planning to you know do nothing and you know just kind of have all day off and slowly kind of be with ourselves in a harmonious group of people and have somebody care for us and provide our meals and do our laundry and and all we have to do is just be here you know just in a calm easy presence and just enjoy our life with no responsibilities no uh, hassles and and just uh, live the good life and we come here uh, maybe we don't really expect that but it's hard not to when you don't have to do anything and there's no responsibilities and right off quick we discover that being on a retreat is not so calm it's not so peaceful it's not so easy we end up agitated irritated frustrated uh, anxious panicking uh, and it takes some careful understanding to to uh, put these two together what are we doing here if it seems like we're just making ourselves more miserable <clears throat> Trungpa Rinpoche was a, a Tibetan Dharma teacher some years ago and he really hit the nail on the head when he said you know if we knew what was involved in this practice, we never would have started. <laughs> but unfortunately, we have all started. And so we had better finish. What happens in a practice like this is that we begin to look beneath the appearance of things. We begin to look beneath the uh, exterior conditions of our life. We've all managed to somehow patch together a life of relationships and jobs and a place to live and social commitments and things to do, which somehow uh, pretty much meets our needs. We could always hope for more, and most of us do, but somehow it, it manages to get us by. And when we come and we just look a little closer at what's really going on within us in relationship to our life, our body, 
our minds, our hearts, our relationships, our past, our imagined future, we see a seething cauldron of discontent. And somehow we are asked to uh, deal with it, open to it, feel it, accept it, let go of what we can, change what's necessary, And we hear these uh, descriptions of the goal of spiritual practice, you know, peace, freedom, tranquility, enlightenment, uh, bliss of one sort or another, and we wonder, where is it? If you have discovered in your days here all that is not bliss, peace, and tranquility, you are on the right path. You haven't made a mistake. Because the path to freedom, to the peace of mind, the bliss, the joy of life, comes not by avoiding and patching together bits and pieces of life, but it comes from exposing all of our discontent, exposing all of our unfulfilled desires, all of our irritations, all of our frustrations, all of our restlessness. And we have to peel away the layers to look, to discover it, and then we can let go of it. It is not possible to let go of what we don't know we're holding on to. And so the first step is to peel away the confusion, the delusion, the illusion, the fantasy that we live with, and see what it is that we're holding on to that is actually causing us so much discontent. And then, when we see how painful it really is to hold on, we will let go. And in that letting go is the, the freedom, the joy, the, the peace of mind. But before we access that, we have to see our discontent, our difficulties, the frustrations in our life. As I said last night, this Chinese Zen master back in the, around the ninth century, Wang Po, he said, this pure mind is all-pervading, radiant beauty, absolute reality. It is a jewel beyond all price. Have you discovered that jewel today?
what we see is maybe the dust that is collected on that jewel over the years of not being polished. So tonight I want to continue speaking again about those clouds that come to the mind that obscure this jewel. And the Buddha said this, this pure mind is obscured by visiting defilements, by states of mind that just arise due to their own conditions, obscuring the luminosity of the mind. And if we don't see that, we suffer. We live unhappily. The most common, the most frequent visitors to the mind that we discover on a retreat are, as I mentioned last night, of course, dullness, sleepiness, doubt, or confusion. And tonight I'll continue and talk about aversion in all of its forms, restlessness, and desire. As we have grown up, been conditioned into a family, a society, a culture, through the educational system, we have developed a personality. And our personality is essentially the habitual ways we respond to the situations of life. And we've responded uh, so many times in such a way that it has become a habit, a deeply ingrained pattern of reacting to conditions. And then we get identified with it. We say, oh, that's who I am. I'm an angry person. I'm a greedy person. You know, I'm a jealous person. I'm an anxious person. And we kind of claim that as our identity. This practice asks that we look at that really carefully. Every time it arises, every time it appears, and see, really, whether we can acknowledge this anger, this desire, this jealousy, as just a visiting defilement to the mind, not a permanent resident. One very important, essential uh, understanding or attitude to really cultivate in your practice is an attitude of acceptance, self-acceptance, a fearless ability to acknowledge this is the way it is. This is the way 
I experience this moment. And to really be alert to notice when we start to criticize and judge ourselves. Because we are going to uncover and discover the most horrible, difficult, unpleasant aspects or aspects of the mind or ways of responding to conditions. We all, at times, are angry, jealous, envious, frightened, fearful, whatever. But to solidify a sense of myself around that and then judge that, judge myself for it, really just undermines our practice. We are undertaking a a very difficult task to expose these false beliefs we have about ourselves. But in the process, we have to see them, and we have to see how we are identified with really unskillful, unwholesome visitors to the mind. So I want to, even though tonight I'll be talking about our friends, or let's say our frequent visitors, anger and aversion, desire, restlessness, they're not who we are. We are not that evil person that's angry all the time. Anger may come a lot, but we don't have to, and we should be careful not to judge ourselves for experiencing, for coming to discover and for uncovering the anger that we feel, the desire that we feel. It's part of practice. It's, it's, it's the essential ingredient of practice to uncover and expose these feelings and not to get identified with them or to gradually eliminate the identification with them. And when we judge ourselves for them, we really compound the difficulty of practice. So these hindrances, these obstructions to the mind, they they act like a filter that we see the world through, and they distort our reality. And because we don't see things clearly, we see things through a cloud of confusion or delusion or illusion, and because we don't see things clearly, we make very unskillful choices and decisions. And we act and respond in unskillful ways because we haven't seen the situation clearly. Remember that all of these visitors to the mind, these really unpleasant, tormenting conditions of the mind, they are rooted in delusion, not seeing clearly. And in that, we get a clue or a key as to how to work with them. And that is to investigate, to 
discover the true nature of this moment, to expose that confusion, that delusion, that illusion, and to see more clearly, to just acknowledge this is the way it is. This is it. You know, it's just, it's just that. It's just this feeling, this experience. Rooted in delusion, accompanied by restlessness. As Kamala acknowledged the other night, it takes the same amount of effort to make yourself miserable as to make yourself happy. So, it's your choice. It's our choice. To make yourself miserable, you really have to work at it. And we work at it by restless, endless thinking. Just ruminating over the past, uh, agitating over the future, and just solidifying a sense of ourself in that process which uh, makes us miserable. And when we are confused, and we have this agitated, restless mind, we will act out our states of mind. When desire arises, we'll act it out unknowingly, blindly, without regard to whose toes we're stepping on or or, uh, our own sense of values. So again, the process that we have undertaken of of mindful awareness, insight into the nature of reality, it's a a three-step process. First, we have to recognize these states of mind. Once we have recognized them as being present, then we have to work with them to open to them, to allow them, allow ourselves to feel them in their fullness, to really discover their true nature. And in that, we see, we come to know that they are impermanent, they are unpleasant, and they're really not who we are. They are impersonal forces that appear in the mind. And when we see that, when we clearly see the impersonality, the the impermanence of these states of mind, then we can let them go. We don't have to claim them as me, as mine, who I am. We can disidentify from them. So, aversion. Aversion is any form of pushing away, withdrawing from, or avoiding our experience. In a very gross manifestation, it's hatred. Something happens and you hate it. You hate them. That, that, is, that is pushing somebody or some situation away as strongly as you can to hate, to get angry at, or to to rage at something. 
in a more subtle form, we just feel disappointed, irritated, frustrated, or bored with our experience. They're all forms of pushing away, not liking, avoiding our experience. And when the mind is clouded by aversion, the mind becomes very dry, brittle, and intolerant. That's the nature of aversion. When aversion appears, its characteristic is judgment, criticism, cynicism, uh, as exper- and experienced in the body is tightness, contraction, clenching, heat, tension. This is the, the, the uh, individual characteristic, the, the thumbprint of aversion. And so when we discover our body tight and clenched and hot, you know, we can be sure we've got some of what we're trying to avoid something in some way. Self-criticism, self-judgment is a form of aversion. An inability to be with what we see about ourself or what we see within ourself. And so we judge it. We turn away. We hate it. We condemn it. We condemn ourselves, And it's really a very undermining, disempowering movement of the mind. When we're lost in our anger, our aversion, we act it out without even knowing it. We just slam bang around in, in careless disregard. One yogi said when she was filled with aversion, she said, my thoughts are cruel to me. I don't even like myself when I'm angry. And I still get it. I still do it and act it out. And I I, I see it. Sometimes I see it. And I don't like it. And that may be the most painful part of practice when we actually acknowledge, oh, right, anger is present, or it's more like we acknowledge, I'm angry. And we can't do anything about it. We can't get rid of it. We can't stop it. We know we don't want to, but we still do. And it really requires some real steady, just okay, just being aware of this is the way it is right now, and not claiming it as a permanent identity. When we recognize it, the way to work with it initially is to just note it. That's that's the way to work with everything. Just note it. Just become aware, recognize it, and as much as possible, not buy into it. Not listen to that story that says, hmm, I should be angry because, 
da-da-da-da-da. Once we recognize it, once we acknowledge it, and then we can begin to work with opening to it, investigating it, feeling it in the body. Anger as felt in the body is extraordinarily unpleasant. The body is tight and contracted and hot, clenched. And when we, as we try to open to it, it's very unpleasant. We don't want to. It takes some real determination, some real steadiness of mind to hang in there with the physical manifestation of anger. In this practice, we don't seek to just get away from the anger or the aversion or the frustration or the disappointment. We're not trying to cover it up with, oh, as soon as I feel anger towards somebody, oh, I'll do some metta. Hmm. There, that'll fix it. Yeah, I don't feel angry anymore. Hey, that's one way of, you know, getting some temporary relief, and it's a good way. It's metta is a great practice. The Buddha really uh, praised people who practiced metta and developed that really open, loving relationship to all beings and situations. But that's not insight. It doesn't free us from our anger. It merely puts it aside. It covers it up. And when our anger is really raging, okay, maybe in order to not feel overwhelmed, we better do some metta. But let's also, when we have the energy, open to it, feel it, be with it, acknowledge it, and just let that anger explode within us, not act it out, not express it, not repress it, not suppress it, but be with it, to, to, to actually feel it, to know it as it is. One time when I was uh, practicing in Burma, uh, I, I was really determined. I was, I was not there for play of any sort. I was there. I was pretty gung-ho. And, you know, when you're in intensive retreat like this for years, there are times when you get a little lazy and you, you, know, you just take a break for a month or two and <laughs> just kind of waffle along. And so some of the other Western monks there were maybe not as diligent as I was at that time. And there was one monk who used to come and like to talk. And he would come to my room every day and he want to talk. And he would jawbone on and on and on about anything. And I would listen for a while and I'd say, okay, that's enough. i got to get back to practice. Goodbye. And he'd be on and on and on and on. And I'd get really irritated, really frustrated, really angry. Just, uh. So I told him, I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to talk. It didn't seem to phase him a bit. He still came. <laughs> so I, you know, I just got angry and fuming and just kind of, you know, snapping at him and, you know, <laughs> trying to push him away. And he just kind of was oblivious to it. 
he'd still come by, <laughs> irritate me. So I said, okay, well, I would just set some limits, some boundaries. I'd say, okay, if he comes, you can stay for five minutes. I'll listen for five minutes, but that's it. Then you got to go. And set a boundary, and it didn't seem, he, he, didn't, uh, he didn't care what the boundary was. He'd stay and talk as long as he wanted. So then I said, all right, I'll just send him metta. He'll come, he'll jawbone on and on, I'll just be pervading metta to him. May you be happy, may you be peaceful, may you be free of suffering, I hope you go away. <laughs> I was still angry, still had a lot of aversion. So then I said, all right, I'll just note whatever it is. I'm standing, I'll just note standing. He can talk, I'll ju I won't even listen. I'll just note standing, standing, standing <laughs> sitting, sitting, sitting. He'll just talk and I'll get through my anger that way. That didn't work. I'll just ignore him. I'll just, I'll just totally ignore him. He can come and talk, I'll just keep sitting. <laughs> rising, falling, rising, falling. And all I was was just burning up with anger and irritation. It wasn't until I actually said, okay, what's going on here? What is actually going on? I can hear the footsteps coming down the hall. <laughs> you know, the body goes into locked contraction. Oh, oh, tightness, contraction, contraction. There's a knock at the door. Oh, irritation, irritation. Okay, okay. Here he comes. Jeez, I hate to see him. Hating, hating, anger, anger, tightness, contraction, uh, uh, frustration. Uh, uh, uh. And when I open to, just actually open to it, say, okay, what does this feel like? Oh boy, this is really unpleasant. This is really unpleasant feeling. And it is so much energy, and it's so chaotic, and it's so burning. I, you want to do anything to get rid of it. So what do we do? We splash it all over somebody. Get out of here. But when you just sit with it and you open to it and you allow it to be there, then you can actually let it go. It comes, you burn with it for a while, and you let it go. And he's there standing, talking away, and you're just sitting there. Actually quite peaceful. Not disturbed. Not irritated, not anxious. We get we get opportunity every day with those people out there that come for the horse rides, <laughs> or the truck that seems to be going by every day at uh, what quarter nine. No, there's, we can't do anything about that noise. We're not going to fix it. We're not going to control the world. We're not going to make it stop. Even if we tell them we're on a silent retreat and please be quiet, you know, they're going to keep doing their thing. And so it's up to us. How are we going to deal with our own suffering? Allow ourselves to feel it. Feel what our reaction is to that sound. Burn with it for a while and let it go. That's the only way. It's important to begin to distinguish between unpleasant experience, the unpleasant quality of experience, and the disliking of it. Now that's a subtle distinction actually, because mostly the unpleasantness comes and we dislike it. That 
All we see is, I don't like it. We haven't even noticed that it's unpleasant. We just don't like it. But when we pay really careful attention, and as we pay careful attention to our moment-to-moment experience, we'll see, oh, something arises. Oh, it's really unpleasant. The sound, the memory, the, the person, just really unpleasant. And then, following that comes the, I don't like it and all of our subsequent attempts to get away from it, to change it, to fix it, to get angry at it. If we notice that unpleasantness first, and really, just really carefully be with that unpleasantness and the unpleasant feeling that is precipitated in the body, in the mind, then we don't get to that aversion. We preempt it from ever arising. Recently, I was I did a retreat at the meditation center in Massachusetts for about a month and a half or four and a half weeks. And when I went there, I wanted to have you know my time, my space, and. I hadn't had a long, silent retreat for a couple of years, and at IMS, it's a big place. There's lots, lots to be done, and they put a, you know, just like here, they put a little sign up on the board, yogi jobs to be done every day. Everybody who's here, please f- sign up. And I said, oh, well, can't mean me. I'm a teacher. I must be... I must be an important person here. I don't have to do a yogi job. <laughs> and, and all those jobs just remained blank for a day and a half because there wasn't many of us there. And I said, geez, maybe they mean me too. <laughs> I had so much aversion. I didn't want to do a job. I just didn't want to do a job. I just said, this is my time to practice, and da 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 da. But I was, and I was feeling really resentful to the person who put up the list, because <laughs> I thought they were just waiting for me to sign up. And, and finally, I just said, "All right, well, here I am. I'm part of this community here. I guess I better do something." So I signed up to do uh, dishwashing every meal, dishwashing. So I went and got the instructions and then stood by the machine. And I was doing the dishes, and everybody would be bringing in the dirty dishes, and I'd be picking them up and putting them in the machine, sending them through the washer. And it was so much fun. <laughs> I really enjoyed doing those dishes. But I had so much resistance to it. But once I get into it, it reconnected me with the whole community of people there. I got to do something a little different than sitting and walking. And just by being with the experience, we can let go of our imagined dislike of it. Boy, thinking about doing something, we can imagine all sorts of horrible disagreeableness to it. But when we actually just settle in and do it, it's often not so bad.
aversion in any of its forms is extraordinarily painful. Frustration, disappointment. But as we open to it, as we learn to open to it, then we can see that this condition of disliking, of frustration, it's just just a momentary experience. It comes, it's there, if you see it and let it go, it's gone. If it comes, you don't see it, it lingers and hangs around and hangs around. You say, I don't want to look at this thing, I don't want to look at this frustration. You can be sure it's going to be sitting on your shoulder for days, just waiting for you to take a look. And all the energy that we use to avoid it exhausts us. And the energy it takes to turn and look to it brings a joy, brings an uh, involvement, a, an interest. When we can arouse that interest to be with whatever it is, even if it's unpleasant, then we, we get a lot of joy from that. The mind loves to know things as they are, even if it's unpleasant. The mind takes great delight, great joy in seeing clearly. And when we turn to look at things, our experience, even when it's unpleasant, the mind gets filled with rapture, with delight, with joy. Try it, you'll see. Put aside your resistance, just temporarily. You can always pick it up again later, (laughs) if you want. So aversion. Another unpleasant, frequent visitor to the mind is restlessness. And often in the first few days of retreat, we have a lot of it, a lot of energy just pacing around, really um, just don't know what to do with it, don't know what to do with all that energy. In its gross form, it's a form of anxiety or panic or frenetic uh, spinning in the mind and, and uh, agitated uh, energy in the body. In its subtle forms, it appears as just distraction or turmoil or a sense of being ill at ease when there's just a feeling of too much energy in the body or in the mind. Sometimes in our misguided attempts at mindfulness, at practice, we sometimes um, precipitate restlessness by trying too hard. Sometimes sometimes we we get caught in a a kind of a hypervigilance. Somehow we think we've got to be right on top of things. And we get hypervigilant, and really all that does is it arouses too much energy. And so the feeling is one of being very agitated and restless and just on edge. So if you have, if, if you see that in yourself, that sometimes you get hypervigilant and edgy, back off, settle back, relax. Mindfulness happens when there's a balance in the energy and the tranquility. Mindfulness doesn't happen 
when there's over energy, too much energy. Because then we just overshoot the moment. We're, we're, we're way beyond it before it happens. Again, when we are lost in our restlessness, then we are just uh, aimlessly wandering in the mind. And often it manifests or it gets acted out as aimless wandering in the body. We just wander around. And in retreat, we often we see it. We, we, we get to see it real quick because we notice we're just wandering around. But a lot of times in our life outside of retreat, we are just bouncing from one thing to the next restlessly. And we don't recognize it. We don't recognize that we are overstimulated and restless as a result. And so we just wander and bounce and we never really settle onto anything for very long. When we begin to pay attention and we recognize it, again, the instruction is to, as much as possible, allow yourself to feel it. Feel it knowingly. Say, oh, this is restlessness. Okay. What does this feel like in the body? Where is restlessness located in the body? It, it again, is very unpleasant. It's a very unpleasant physical experience, restlessness. And so the technique that works with getting a handle on restlessness is to sit still or stand still as comfortably as you can. So if you're feeling restless, get yourself one of these nice easy chairs here and sit down and sit still. And then sit with your eyes open outside in all of this space and say, okay, this is restlessness. Let me burn up with restlessness. Let me die of restlessness. When you put restlessness in a little space, in this room could be very little, when you're really restless. And you close your eyes and that makes it even smaller. Restlessness becomes explosive. It's like a volcano that's ready to blow its top. So the a relieving condition for that restlessness is to give yourself a lot of space. And we have a lot here. Go outside and do some standing meditation looking to the west. All the restlessness that you can feel will never fill that space. But it's a way of, of grounding it, of getting uh, at ease with it in the mind, in the body. Again, putting a label on the experience. This experience is restlessness. Restlessness is very chaotic. It's just bubbling over. It's just, you know, the body is frenetic and the mind is chaotic. And if we try to see the individual pieces, the individual sensations in the body, or the individual thoughts in this restless mind, it, it's, it's just impossible. 
It's just a swirling mess. And so if we just take and put a big frame around this experience and call it restlessness, everything that we're experiencing, uh, this is restlessness. Then we have a handle on it. Then we can get a handle on it. And with that, we can begin to notice the individual pieces that make up restlessness, the sensations in the body, the thoughts in the mind, the, the energy. When we open to it, we, we recognize it, we open to it, we investigate it, we come to feel it knowingly, we get a handle on its individual characteristic, its nature, the discomfort, the energy, the scatteredness in the mind. And if we sustain our attention on this experience of restlessness, not acting it out, not suppressing it, not trying to be with something as small as the breath, but just being with the whole package of called restlessness, then we see that, of course, it's very unpleasant. It is completely out of our control. It's not personal to us. It's totally impersonal. And it's impermanent. And when we see that, when we really grok that restlessness is not personal to me. It's just, it's just due to conditions. Then we can let go of it. We can just let it be a pass energy passing through the body, passing through the mind, and not kind of grab onto it and claim it and own it and feel defeated by it. In a retreat, one of the instructions is to you know to to not speak not read and not write or minimally uh, minimal writing just just a few notes maybe and the reason we offer that guidance for being on retreat is that it stirs up a lot of restlessness talking and reading stirs up the mind puts the mind in thinking mode, stirring up a lot of uh, agitation and thought. In Burma, when I would go to my interviews, if almost every time that I said, oh, I'm feeling very restless, and uh, the first question that Saito Upandita or any of the other teachers would ask me is, who have you been talking to? And the because if you're not talking or reading, the mind will naturally settle down. And it won't be so restless. But when it, it just takes, honest, a 30-second conversation can provoke restlessness for hours. You, you, you'll see. You, know, you, have a, you just have a brief conversation in the kitchen. And then you, 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 you go back to the cushion and you ruminate, you, you reflect, you think of it over, and you say, oh, I should have said that. I wonder if they believed that. Was a, I wonder if they misunderstood me. Maybe I better go back and tell them this. And, geez, if I do that, maybe... And on and on and on. Isn't that the way it happens? That's the way it happens. So you know that talking, the use of words, whether it's speaking or reading or, or writing, stirs up 
the mind. So that the mind cannot be calm, cannot be collected, cannot be at ease with the present moment. So if you're restless, then look, look to see what, what use of thought and words are you, are you using to keep the mind stirred up like that. They say the antidote to restlessness is happy comfort of mind and body. And so when you feel restless, give yourself permission to be as comfortable as you can physically. Just, just you know, don't, don't sit in the most painful posture, but sit in a real easy, soft posture. Or stand, if that's less painful so that you can begin to feel some comfort and let the mind settle down within it. On my retreat, recent retreat in May, there were a couple times when I would get stirred up, and I'm not sure it was because I was using words or talking. I didn't do much talking, but there were times, a couple times, when I just got in a a funk, a real a kind of a panicky, not really panicky, but just restless, just restless. I didn't know whether I wanted to sit or whether I wanted to walk or whether I wanted to walk fast or slow or outside or inside or sit here or sit there. Or, you know how you get, you just like, <laughs> what do I want? You know, the mind is just jammed up. There's too much energy. And even though I teach this stuff, I, you know, when you're caught in it, you don't remember this. <laughs> you, know, you don't remember it. You just, you're caught in it. And it's just like you're trying to do something with it. And I remember one evening, I was just outside pacing up and down the garden. They have a big garden there. I was just pacing. I was so just frenetic. Mindless, totally mindless. And I said, what is going on here? I just said, this is ridiculous. So I went back to my room, and I sat down in the chair, facing out the window. And my window was facing out in this little courtyard, a little, there was a few gardens, little gardens and bushes there. And I just watched this tree. And it took only about five minutes, maybe five minutes, just sitting there, just watching, really getting intently absorbed in this little garden space and the mind settled right down. Not because I did something, not because I fixed it or had some technique or whatever, it's just I was at my wit's end. I said, I don't know what to do. I'm going to stop doing everything. That's all it takes. Stop doing anything. Oh, restlessness comes down. Maybe you can remember this. I, I couldn't. But. <laughs> Aversion, restlessness. The last hindrance or obstruction to the pure mind, the clear mind, and certainly not last in importance, maybe first in importance, but the last I'll speak about tonight is the wanting mind desiring mind, the attached mind, the mind that just wants something else. 
its gross form, of course, it's just obsessive indulgence. It's our addictive behavior. Whatever addictive behavior you have, that's the wanting mind being acting out. Or if you're not acting it out physically, then you can see the mind is just obsessively obsessing on something. Getting, doing, having, wanting, becoming. And the mind just goes on and on and on. It's like the mind is addicted to this feeling of desire, of wanting. Desire is a tricky state of mind. It says, if you get this experience, or if you get this thing, if you get this person, if you get this enlightenment, whatever it is, if you get it, then you'll be happy forever. That's, that's, the, that's the trick that, that desire plays on us. It says, if you get this, you'll live happily ever after. Now, look at your own experience. Somewhere today, you have wanted something. Maybe all you wanted was that bell to ring to end the sitting, or maybe whatever it was. And when you got it, how long did the sense of fulfillment and satisfaction last? Did it last a whole minute, even? It doesn't. A sense of fulfillment and satisfaction doesn't last more than a split second. And yet we will crave and desire and want something for hours, if not weeks or months, and pursue it in all kinds of skillful and unskillful ways, and get it, and not feel satisfied. You can't satisfy desire. You can't, you can't satisfy it. The more you feed desire and craving, the hungrier it gets. When we're caught in it, we don't even know it. We just act it out. There's a great little cartoon. I'll put it on the board tomorrow for you. But it shows this person sitting there, minding his own business, just kind of saying, hmm. In the second frame of the cartoon, he sees something, he says, hmm, and what's that? And then he takes a second look and says, hey, that looks pretty good. <laughs> then he says, the next frame, he says, ah, I want that. And then he says, i got to have that. He says, I will die if I don't get it. <laughs> so then he gets it. And he's just kind of indulging in having this thing. And he's, yes, 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 yes. And he just kind of, you know, laid out in indulgent uh, uh, gratification. And then he's just kind of sitting there in a stupor, you know, after his indulging in his uh, pleasurable desire. Sitting there, just in a total stupor, he says, Hey, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> and he just goes through the, <laughs> just goes, just goes through the whole thing again. <laughs> Our life is like that. 
<laughs> we just sit there minding our own business. Something comes in front of the mind's eye and we say, hey, what's that? One way of working with desire, the wanting mind, is to focus on the feeling rather than the object that is desired. When desire and wanting arises in the mind, it causes us to focus on just the pleasurable aspect of that experience. Just that little slice of the experience that's pleasurable, and we focus on it. We get locked in on that. We don't see the rest of it. If we can turn our attention away from the object of our desire, the activity of our desire, the person of our desire, the thing, or whatever it is, and focus on the feeling of desire itself, then we will see that it too is just an impersonal, impersonal, impermanent and very unpleasant state of mind. It comes, it goes, and if we can bear with it, if we can sustain our attention on it, we will see that desire doesn't last very long. It may last longer than is comfortable, but if we can bear the discomfort, we will see that it is just a passing color in the mind. We don't have to act it out. We don't have to pursue all of our desires. These clouds in the mind, sleepiness, dullness, doubt, aversion, restlessness, desire, they obscure clear knowing of the way things are. Because they blind us. They blind us to seeing things truly without getting attached, diverse, restless, frustrated, disappointed. As we discover these clouds in the mind, and we work with them, we open to them, we become familiar with them, it's not as if we get to a place where they never arise. But progress in practice, or uh, the momentum of mindfulness, helps us to recognize them more clearly, more quickly, so that they don't so that we don't get caught by them and that we don't suffer with them for so long. And in that is a taste of freedom. Just a taste. So we should be attentive to those times during our day, even now, when the mind is relatively clear, relatively lucid seeing things as they are, when we really aren't 
caught and tormented by any of these hindrances. And we all have periods of time during the day when we're just at ease with the way things are. Why don't we recognize that? Why don't we see that? Why, why do we always focus on the difficult times when we're caught in these unpleasant states of mind? In part because these unpleasant states of mind always refer to a sense of me. I am angry. I am you know, restless. I am sleepy. And when the mind is, is pure, is, is clear, is, is not caught by any of these clouds, there is just a very rapid flow of experience going by. You know, just sensations in the body or of walking or sitting and just thoughts going by and sensations going by. We're not grabbing onto them. No sense of I gets held, gets grabbed onto. And so we don't think talk about it. Nothing, nothing, nothing happened. We hardly recognize it. So begin to begin to notice those periods of time in your sitting, in your walking throughout your day when you're just in a very easeful presence of mind with the way things are. And it may last only for 30 seconds, it might last for a minute or two, or maybe longer. But it's important to begin to recognize this is the pure mind. The pure mind, remember, is not some empty, vacuous, spaciness, uh, nothingness. It's not that at all. It's a very dynamic, energized experience, but it's not, we don't get stuck, we don't get caught, we don't feel contracted within it. The happiness of a pure mind comes not from excitement, not from satisfying our desires, but it comes from being free of these torments, being free of desire, being free of aversion, being free of restlessness. And it's a subtle happiness, but it's one that we can appreciate with our careful attention here. So let's sit for a couple of minutes.